Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us for the first in a series of messages titled Falling Forward. As we look closely at the life of King David, lead pastor David Fossil shows us what kind of people we ought to be. Join us today as we find answers to the question, are you what God is looking for? Okay, so what we just watched is a couple moments from this last American Idol where Lee DeWise was picked uh, to win the competition. We watched uh, how John Wall was selected number one in the NBA draft. If you turn on your TV, you're going to find a, a lot of things like that, a lot of shows. You can, you know, Top Chef, American, America's Got Talent, uh, The Bachelor, or The Apprentice, even Miss America or the presidential campaign. They all have the same idea in mind. You start with some sort of a contest, right? Some sort of thing that you're trying to... Get, beat someone else. And, and the best singer or the best athlete or the most competent or the smartest, they win the contest. And whoever wins the contest gets some sort of a prize, right? If you win American Idol, you get a recording contract for a year. That's your prize. If you win, if you n- number one selection in the NBA draft, you get a massive um, financial contract. You do have to play for the Washington Wizards so that I can you know, go a little bit back and forth. But that's your prize, right? If you win the presidential campaign, you get to lead this country for four years. There's some sort of a contest. And typically the fastest or the best or the best looking or the most competent or the smartest wins the contest and gets the prize. Now, most of us, we're not going to be on any TV show. We're not going to run for office. So it's kind of hard to identify with that. So, so let's, on a very personal level, you guys remember when we were kids and, and during recess time, everybody would line up at the basketball court or, or, or line up at the field there. And the two most popular kids, normally the best athletes, they'd get to be captains, right? They'd get to be captains and they would begin the process of picking teams. You remember how that went? And they'd pick this person and that person and this person and that person. And there, and there, you st- there we stood, you know, hoping that maybe we would get picked. Hoping at the very least we wouldn't be the last ones picked. Remember how that felt? How about this? So we had one no. Thank you very much. You can go to Valley Bible, ma'am. That's fine. <laughs> Remember um, when you applied for your last job, you know, and you knew there were other people that were applying for the position, but you went in for the interview and you gave your resume and, and you did your thing and you left and you were so hoping and so wondering, do, do I have the characteristics necessary? Do I have more characteristics and more abilities than the other candidates so that I am offered the job? You remember, remember how that felt? It, it, we're in a contest and typically the fastest or the best looking or the smartest or the most able wins the contest and gets some sort of a prize whether that's a job or you get to be on a team or you get something special. This morning we're starting a brand new series on the life of David called Falling Forward. And uh, we're going to start with this very first story where he is selected. He is chosen to be king. Now, before even looking at the story, you would think it's kind of sort of like American Idol, the NBA draft, the presidential campaign. The best and the brightest is going to get picked. The most impressive person is going to get picked. But one of the fascinating things from this story is that what man looks at is not what God looks at. One of the fascinating things that we're going to learn this morning is that what God typically does is he takes ordinary people with an extraordinary commitment to him. And with that combination, he can accomplish incredible things for the kingdom of God. Ordinary people with an extraordinary commitment, and he can accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you grab the Bible on the back table, we're on page 202. 
page 202, 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to be. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to start by reading in, in verse 1. The story is introduced to us, and here's what we read. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, if you really want to know and understand the story of David, you have to know a little bit about this guy called Saul and this other guy called Samuel. The way that God originally set it up is that he, God, was going to be king of his people. There wasn't going to be a human king. There wasn't going to be an earthly king. He was king. And if you wanted to know what God needed or wanted from you, then he was going to speak through people called priests, prophets, or judges. So he's the king, and then if you want to have specific information, priests, prophets, or judges. That's how he set it up. One of those guys is called Samuel. He's God's choice, right? And he's the one that is speaking to God's people on behalf of God. But Samuel gets old at one point, and he just can't kind of keep up with all the demands of what, what he's supposed to be doing. And so he, he nominates his three sons to take over the job. So they take over the job, and very quickly, they prove to be inept, incompetent, greedy, and basically corrupt. They're taking bribes. And so the, God's people rise up, and they say to Samuel, dude, man, we know you're old, but your kids are lousy leaders. We, we you know what? We want a king. We want a king just like every other country, just like every other nation around us. We want a king. Give us a king. And so he, they do that. A couple chapters back, they pick a guy by the name of Saul. He becomes their first king. Now, initially, he starts out pretty good. He's doing a pretty good job. But as time goes by, some things come up. He, he starts to have an incredible temper. And then he starts to slide in his responsibilities. Then he starts to step outside of God's will. And it's getting worse and worse and worse until you get to chapter 16, verse 1. Did you see what God said about Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. I, I would suggest that's not a good thing. I have re- I've turned my back on him. He and I are not on speaking terms anymore. In fact, Samuel, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send you to Bethlehem. There's this family called the Jesse family, and they've got a bunch of boys, and I've already picked one of the boys to be king. That's what we're going to do. And, and so the, the, the story continues. Verse 2, Samuel said, how, how can I go? King Saul will hear about it and kill me. Now that should be a hint right there that this guy is messed up that he would actually even think about and consider killing God's mouthpiece. But Samuel is thinking that to himself. So it goes on in verse 2, the Lord said, Take a heifer with you. Say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse and his family to the sacrifice. I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Okay, God says, here's what we're going to do, Samuel. Uh, Saul won't touch you. I'll make sure of that. You're going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to have kind of like a little mini worship service. You're going to invite Jesse and his entire family. And at the end of the worship service, we're going to line the boys up. And I'm going to show you who we're going to pick as the next king. That's what we're going to do. Okay, got it, got it, let's go. So Samuel goes on his way, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, now this is an interesting little detail, the elders of the town trembled when they met Samuel, and they asked, do you come in peace? Now, interesting, because Samuel is essentially the pastor. That's what he is, basically. He's the pastor. He shows up in town, and they freak out. They get all scared. They're literally trembling. And you go, well, why? Why are they so afraid of the pastor of Samuel, right? 
Well, it's probably because they've heard of what happened less than five, six verses earlier. Just check it out. Look at the end of chapter 15, verse 32. You see it there? End of chapter 15, verse 32. Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag was an evil king that had stepped outside of the will of God, not a good man. So Samuel says, we need to have a little chat. I need to explain to you what you've done is not right. I need you to understand that you are stepping outside of God's will and it is not acceptable, okay? So, so the pastor's gonna have a little chat with the king. That's how the story starts or the conversation starts. It's very interesting how the conversation ends. Look at the end of verse 32. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. So they have a little chat and when the chat's done, Samuel takes his sword and boom, cuts him down. So when he shows up at Bethlehem, they're kind of freaked out. Now, on a personal note, I read this story and I thought to myself, I got to get me a sword. <laughs> I'm thinking life as a pastor would be much easier with a sword. I mean, think about it. We're going to have offering time. Put my hand on the sword. I think a lot of us would tithe, right? Help, help Karen and Terrence out with hockey. Put my hand on the sword. We'd all sign up, right? But times are different, so let's just move on, I guess. <laughs> Verse 5, Samuel replied, yes, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to have a worship service. Consecrate yourselves. Come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay? Just like we said. And then we read this in Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Now, Eliab was one of the eldest of Jesse's boys, and so th this guy comes by, right? Eliab comes by. And Samuel, it says, thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So basically, Samuel knows that he's going to Bethlehem to pick the next king. And so they have the little worship service. He sees Eliab and he thinks to himself, that's got to be it. I mean, this guy's an impressive guy. He's a good-looking guy. He's strong. He's polite. He's well-spoken. He's got all these education degrees. He's got a huge IQ. He's good with finance. He's a military strategist. He's good with politics. This has got to be the next king. And then you have in verse 7 the critical, foundational, pivotal point in this chapter where God turns everything on its head. And he says this. You can follow it in your Bibles or we have it for you on the screen. It's such an important verse. Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. So when we're trying to pick the American Idol, when we're trying to pick the top chef, when we're trying to pick the number one NBA pick, when we're trying to pick our president for the next four years, we look at certain things. Basically, we look at this thing called the resume. And we try and identify who's the most competent, who's the most intelligent, and that's who we're going to pick for these different contests. And God says it's not that those things are wrong, it's not that Eliab is an evil guy, but he's not the one I've chosen. That's not what I look at. I don't look at the resume. And then he says this, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The, the Lord looks at the heart. Interestingly enough, the very next time we hear of Eliab is in the next chapter in the story of David and Goliath. And Eliab is the first brother that meets David when he comes to the battlefield. And he proves himself not to be an evil person, but he proves literally to be a spiritual coward. Not an evil person, but he is not the kind of guy to lead God's people as king. And so this phrase gets thrown around. You know, man looks at the resume, basically, but the Lord looks 
at the heart. Now, when we use the phrase heart, when we, we hear it sung in a country western song or it's in a, in a Hallmark card, the word heart refers to the center of, of our emotions. It refers to, to where our romance comes from. It refers to that, that piece of who we are. That's fine. That's how we use the word heart. In the Bible, when the word heart is used, it not only refers to our emotions, but it refers to our intellects. It refers to our moral, a moral compass. It represents the core of who we are. It represents the foundation of everything we stand for. If you know someone's heart, you know everything that's important to them and valuable to them. And so Samuel said, God says to Samuel, man looks at the resume, at the outward accomplishments. I look at the core of who they are. That is what is most important to me. And, and Eliab, he, he's, he's not the one. And so begins the process of, of, of these boys walking before Samuel. And so we read in verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab. This is another of the boys. And he had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Verse 9, Jesse had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen any of these either. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Now, we know the rest of the story. We know there's one left, a a kid by the name of David. What I find fascinating in this story is that the dad, Jesse, didn't even think to invite David to the meeting. He didn't even, he, he saw absolutely no leadership and ministry potential in his youngest son. Why should I invite him? I'm going to bring the seven eldest boys, but certainly not David. It, just a little applicational point. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about you. It doesn't matter what the world says in terms of your potential. It matters what God says about your potential. And in God's eyes, we all have potential. And so the story goes on and Samuel says something quite interesting. Samuel said, send for him. And we will not sit down until he arrives. Now, can you imagine the brothers? What do you mean we're not going to sit down until he arrives? Stand up. Get up. We're going to stand until your youngest brother comes. Now, standing then and today is a sign of respect. And here the, the older brothers are all standing there waiting for their kid brother to show up. So the kid brother shows up. They've got to go out to the fields and get him. They're not just calling him on the cell phone. They've got to go out, get him, bring him back, right? And so we read in verse 12. So he sent for him, brought him in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome in features. And then the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him, for he is the one. When you would anoint someone, it was the sign that this was God's chosen to be the king, to be the leader. So Samuel, verse 13, took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Interesting phrase. In the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came to David in power. I think it's interesting, that little phrase, that that this all happened in the presence of all the older brothers. Can you imagine their day? I mean, it started with their dad, Jesse, waking them up early. They were all in bunk beds in the room and and saying, okay, guys, listen up. It's going to be a big day for us. Samuel is coming to our town. He's going to have a private worship service with us. And he's told me he's going to pick one of you boys as king. I know, don't tell anyone. I know I'm crazy excited too. One of you get to be king. So here's what you need to do, right? I need you to go to Supercuts, get a haircut. I need you to take a shower, okay? I need you then to go to Men's Warehouse, get a nice suit, polish up your shoes, and then we're gonna all show up with Samuel and one of you gets picked king. But one after the other after the other gets turned down for the job. And Samuel says, let me see your kid brother. And the kid brother gets picked as king. This This is the guy that they all picked on when dad wasn't looking. 
This is the, this is the kid that, that, that had all the hand-me-downs from their older brothers when it didn't fit them anymore. This is the kid who had to go to bed early and the older brothers could stay up and watch the DVD, but he was too young. You got to go to bed. He gets picked king. And it has something to do with, I don't know, his heart. We're all more, more respected. We have a better resume, but he's got a better heart. Now, we under, we've, we've heard this before, but to me, it sounds a little vague. I, I'm still not exactly sure what God saw in him. He, here's what I want to help you understand. I want to help break down for you some of the characteristics that God saw in terms of why David was chosen and why you can be chosen to do extraordinary things in the kingdom of God. It, there's a couple things. We're going to look at the book of Psalms. Most of it, a lot of it, David wrote. It, so it, it, all the verses are going to be on the screen. You can jot these down or just follow along. First thing I want to write, I have you write down if you're taking notes. It's one of the things I think God saw in David is that he was an individual who trusted in him. He trusted in God. Now, Psalm 62, verses 6 through 8, I've broken it down for you to help you understand uh, what it's saying here, what David is saying. Um, it doesn't look like this in Psalms, but it'll make sense to you here. It says, he alone, okay, David is speaking here. He alone, speaking of God, he is my rock. He alone is my salvation. He alone is my fortress, uh, so I won't be shaken. In other words, because God is all these things for me, I have no reason to live my life in fear, none whatsoever. He goes on. He alone is my salvation. I've already said it once, but let me say it a second time to make sure you know. He's my salvation. That's the only way we get saved. He's my salvation. And then he adds this phrase, fascinating phrase. And it is my honor to depend on God. Hey, you know what? It's a privilege to me to trust in God. It's a privilege. You don't hear that kind of language, but that's what he's saying there. He's my rock, my salvation, my fortress, my salvation. And then he ends, he is my mighty rock. I've already said that again. Let me throw in the adjective. And he's my refuge. So because he's all these things, my rock, salvation, fortress, and refuge, here's my conclusion to you. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. More than anything else, David was a man who trusted in God. I trust him. I depend on him. I lean on him. Basically, I have faith in him. Someone gave me one of these Reader's Digest stories. Let me just read it to you and then we'll move on. It's a story about a man who appeared at the pearly gates in heaven and St. Peter asked him, have you ever done anything of particular merit? Well, I, I can think of one thing, the man said. Uh, Once I came upon a gang of high testosterone bikers who were threatening a young woman. I directed them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't listen. And so I approached the largest and the most heavily tattooed biker. I smacked him on the head, kicked his bike over, ripped out his nose ring, and threw it to the ground. And I told him, leave her alone or you're going to answer to me. St. Peter was impressed. When did this happen? The guy answered, just a couple minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's one thing to be a man of faith, and it's quite different to be a man of foolishness. Don't under, don't, we think that faith means you can't use your brain, that you can't reason, that you can't process. No, you have to do all those things. But once you've done all those things, when it's all said and done, even if it doesn't make sense to you, you're going to trust what this book says, what God says, over above what anyone else says. You see, God picks ordinary people with an extraordinary commitment to him. And when he does that, when he finds that people, he can accomplish great things in his kingdom. Let's move on. Another thing that we see in the life of David is that he was committed to the Bible. He was committed to God's word. Psalm 119 is a very famous chapter in the Bible. 
where David goes on and on and on about his commitment to God's word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart. Oh, by the way, that means a lot more than reading it. It means a lot more than studying it. It means a lot more than filling out the blanks in your study guide. It means he literally was, he had memorized it. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 40, verse 8. I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Your word, the Bible, is within my heart. I wish I could get all the pastors up front here and you could come forward, we could lay hands on you, pray for you, and boom, you would automatically be spiritual. But it doesn't happen. I wish I could take a magic wand and some pixie dust and pour it over and go like this and boom, you'd be spiritual, but it doesn't happen. You want to be spiritual? It starts with a commitment to trust in God. That was point number one. It always starts there. A commitment to trust in Jesus Christ. And then the second step, always the second step, is a commitment to this book, is a commitment to God's word. You know, this comes up every so often. We talk about it, and I'm not trying to punk you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just going to lay it out as straight as I can. You cannot become what God wants you to become unless you read, study, and know this book. You can't do it. Now, I'm really glad that you come every Sunday, and I, as your spiritual chef, prepare a Bible lesson for you. But if that's the only meal you're getting throughout the week, you are spiritually undernourished. You are not getting what you need. I have a friend of mine who is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God yet. He is not a Christian. He shows up here every single Sunday because he's checking this Jesus thing out. And one of the things he told me, I didn't even ask him. He says, one of the things I'm just trying to, I'm reading through the Bible this year to just see if it really holds water, if it really rings true. This is an atheist doing that. We believe in God, but we can barely pick it up once a week. Please, I, you know, I'm, the plan I'm trying to give you is not tricky. Monday through Friday, two chapters. That's it. It'll take you less than 10 minutes. Monday through Friday, two chapters. You get Saturday off, show up on Sunday, guaranteed you're going to grow. Make a commitment to God's word. See what God does through you when he's constantly speaking to you. Let's move on. Point number three is that we have to be willing to be stretched. Willing to be stretched who we are. Psalm 26, David says, test me, O Lord, try me, examine my heart. Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David says, I want you to test me, try me, search me, test me, and lead me. All that to basically say, stretch me spiritually. Stretch me. I don't want to stay in my little spiritual comfort zone. I want you to stretch me. I want you to make me more than I already am. I want you to force me to try new things for you. Stretch me. When I, when I coach my, my, my boys' soccer team, when we start practice, we always start the same way. We start by stretching. I, I just be honest with you, both as a player and as a coach, it's the most boring time of the entire practice. All we're doing is stretching. Now, those of you who are into physiology and medicine, you could probably explain it a lot better than I could, but there's, there's two reasons why athletes stretch, whether you're playing just kind of recreational or professional athletes. Two reasons why you stretch. Reason number one is because when you stretch, it lowers the chance of injury. You could still get injured, but if you stretch your muscles out, the, the, the probability that you're going to pull a muscle, stretch a muscle, you know, tear a muscle is lowered. So you stretch to to minimize that possibility. But the second reason you stretch is because when you stretch, you increase the possibility, the possibility 
of maximum performance. So if I stretch my muscles out, the theory is that I'll be able to run faster, I'll be able to jump higher, I'll be able to kick a ball harder, I'll be able to throw it harder. The more I stretch my muscles out, the probability is that I'm going to have greater maximum performance. And the same is true in your life. You will never arrive at maximum performance in your life if you're not willing to be stretched by God. No way, no how. And frankly, some of us here, maybe even most of us here, are playing it way too safe in life. We've already figured out who we are, what I can do, what I'm good at, and what I can't do. This is who I am right here. I'm not going to try anything new. For crying out loud, you've got another 10, 15, 50 years to live. Really? You figured it all out by now? You need to know God wants to stretch you. Now, I don't know where, but if you do what David does, and oh, by the way, this has nothing to do with what gender you are, how young you are, how old you are, whether you're smart, not so smart, whether you have a degree or didn't even get a GED. It has nothing to do with that. It's very simply saying, God, test me, try me, search me, lead me. I'm willing for you to show me something in my life where I need to be stretched. Something I never even thought I could do or try, but you know what? I'll do it and I'll try it for you. And David was that kind of guy. And because of that extraordinary commitment, God do, did amazing things through his life. Be willing to be stretched. Point number four, David believed in the power or the priority of prayer. Whatever you want to write down there is fine. Um, he, he wasn't one of these guys that just talked about prayer. He, he didn't just kind of have a 15-second prayer before the meal and, um, you know, one-minute prayer tucking the kids in the bed. No, he actually prayed. I could have given you a boatload of verses here. I mean, literally a boatload. i just given you three just by way of giving you an example. Psalm chapter 61, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. In Psalm chapter 4, he's also praying, answer me when I call to you, when I pray to you. Psalm 86, verse 6, hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry for mercy. He, he consistently prayed. He believed in the, the power of prayer and the priority of prayer. I, I want to read to you a story. It's a little bit longer story. It's from this book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, by John Ortberg. He's a pastor in Menlo Park at a Presbyterian church there. Great author, great pastor. And uh, he, he says this in this book. Let me just read it to you. He says, one of my favorite adventures in prayer involves Doug Cole, who has a ministry in Washington, D.C. that mostly involves people in politics and stagecraft. Doug became acquainted with Bob, an insurance salesman who was completely unconnected with any government circles. Bob became a Christian and began to meet with Doug to learn about his new faith. One day, Bob came in, an excited, in all excited about a statement in the Bible where Jesus says, Ask whatever you will in my name, and you shall receive it. Is that really true, Bob demanded? Doug explained, well, it's not a blank check. You, you have to take into context the teachings of the whole scripture on prayer. But yes, it is really true. Jesus really does answer prayer. Great, Bob said. I got to start praying for something. I think I'll pray for Africa. Uh, that's kind of broad target. Why don't you narrow it down to one country, Doug advised. All right, I'll pray for Kenya. Do you know anyone in Kenya, Doug asked? No. Have you ever been to Kenya? No. Bob just wanted to pray for Kenya. So Doug made an unusual arrangement with him. He challenged Bob to pray for every day for six months for Kenya. If Bob would do that and nothing extraordinary happened, Doug would pay him $500. But if something remarkable did happen, Bob would pay Doug $500. 
If Bob did not pray every day, the whole deal was off. It was a pretty unusual prayer program, but then again, Doug is a pretty creative guy. Bob began to pray every day, and for a long while, nothing happened. And then one night, he was at a dinner in Washington. The people around the table explained what they did for a living. One woman said she helped run an orphanage in Kenya, the largest of its kind. Bob saw $500 suddenly sprout wings and begin to fly away, but he couldn't keep quiet. Bob roared to life. He had not said so much up to this point, but he pounded her relentlessly with question after question. You're obviously very interested in my country, the woman said to Bob, overwhelmed by his sudden barrage of questions. Have you been to Kenya before? No. Do you know someone in Kenya? No. Well, how do you happen to be so curious? Well, someone is kind of paying me $500 to pray, he said. She asked Bob if he would like to come to Kenya and tour the orphanage. Bob was so eager to go, he would have left that very night. Eventually, when Bob arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty, the lack of basic health care they had. Upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get this place out of his mind. He began to write to large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need he had seen. He reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. So why don't you send them to this place in Kenya, he asked. And some of them did. The orphanage received more than $1 million worth of medical supplies. The woman called Bob up and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters you wrote. We would like to fly you back over here and have a big party. Will you come? So Bob flew back to Kenya. While he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country and then offered to take Bob on a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. In the course of the tour, they saw a prison and Bob asked the president about a group of prisoners there. Ah, they're political prisoners, the president said. That's a bad idea, Bob said brightly. You should let them out. Bob finished the tour and flew back home. Sometime later, Bob received a phone call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What did you say? I told him he should let them out. The State Department official explained that the department had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners to no avail. Normal diplomatic channels and political maneuverings had led to, the, to a dead end, but now the prisoners had been released and the State Department had been told by the country of Kenya that it had been largely because of a guy called Bob. <laughs> so the government was calling to say thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, who was not politically connected at all, boarded a plane once more, flew back to Kenya where he prayed. And he asked God to give wisdom to the leader of the nation he selected as government. And the story ends like this. How about you? What are you praying for? I have a really exciting announcement to make this morning. Uh, it's inspired by this story, and what we would like to do is we would like to challenge each and every one of you to pray for one thing for six months. Pray for one thing for six months every day. And if in those six months something extraordinary does not happen, then my good friend and our worship pastor, Joy Socking, is going to give you $500. Let's give him a big hand. Thank you so much, Joy. That's very exciting. <laughs> Honestly, do we really have to be paid to pray? 
We believe in it. Why don't we do it? You see, God is going to use ordinary people with an extraordinary commitment to this kind of thing right here, to praying, and when he does that, he can accomplish incredible things through us. Let's stop talking about it. Let's just do it. Let's do it. Let's move on. A couple more, and we'll wrap it up. David was genuinely humble. He was genuinely humble. Psalm 131, verse 1. David says, My heart is not proud. O Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. You know, one interesting detail in 1 Samuel 16 is what happens to David after he's anointed as the next king. I mean, he's basically selected. He's going to be the next king, the next president, the next prime minister. You know what he did immediately after that? He went back to the fields to tend sheep. Now, to me, that doesn't quite connect. It doesn't quite make sense. Because in our day and age, what would most of us do? Heck, go back and do sheep? I don't think so. I'm going to get on a limo, go to Jerusalem, check out the new palace. Right? I'm going to change the business cards from David the shepherd to David the king. Right? I'm going to get an agent. Agent's going to book me with Larry King before he retires, hardball, Oprah, and I'm going to share, you know, what I'm going to do as king. I'm going to get, I'm going to have a press conference, and we're going to talk about the new initiatives and the new policies my government is going to introduce. That's what we would do, right? Not David. He goes and tends sheep. And when you read his story, you discover he actually didn't get to sit on the throne for quite a while. Application. Sometimes God can give you a calling. He can give you something exactly that he wants you to do. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen tomorrow. You may have to wait. You may have to wait. One of the reasons David went back to ten sheep, you know why? Because he was a humble guy. Humility doesn't mean that you pretend that you don't have gifts. No, you can be very confident in who you are. You can be self-assured in your abilities, your talents, how, what God's given for you. It, it means you don't toot your horn. That's it. it. It means that you don't draw attention to yourself. You do your thing, and if people, you know, compliment you, great, but you, you don't go out of your way to look what I did and look how... No, you don't toot your... You're just genuinely humble because ultimately, it's not really about you. It's not really about me. It's about God. Be genuinely humble. A couple more things. We're going to wrap up. One thing we see, number six, is that David was a man of character. Psalm 78, verse 70 says this. It says, God chose David, his servant, and he took him from the sheep pens, from tending sheep, and he brought him to be shepherd of his people. Notice the play on words. He used to be a shepherd of sheep. Now he's a shepherd of people or Israel, right? And, and then it tells us why God selected him. I love this. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. In other words, he had character and with skillful hands, he led them. In other words, he had competence. Now, what I'm trying to challenge you and the point we're trying to make here is that you've got to be a person of character. You have to have integrity. But don't for one moment think that you don't need competence. You don't need skills. Oh, no, no, no. He had skill as well. He had competence as well. So you can be a person of character. But I'm not going to let you do my taxes unless you have accounting skills. You can be a person of character, a person of integrity. I'm not going to let you build my kitchen cabinets unless you're a good carpenter. You can be a person of character. I'm not going to let you work on my car unless you have mechanical skills. I'm not saying competence doesn't matter. It does matter. But in God's world, character matters more. It matters more. 
There's an old ancient fable about an emperor in the Far East and he doesn't have any children of his own. He's very old. He has no heir to pass on the kingdom. So he calls the hundred most brightest young people to his palace. And he announces to them, I'm going to pick one of you to be the next emperor of our kingdom. And here's how I'm going to select the next emperor. I'm going to give each and every one of you a seed. I want you to go home and I want you to plant this seed. I want you to take care of it. I want you to grow the plant. And and in one year, you're going to come back and based upon what I see in that pot, I will select the next emperor of our kingdom. And so all the the kids go home and there's this one little boy called, called Ling. And Ling plants his seed, and he, he waters it, and days go by, and weeks go by, and nothing, nothing's coming out. And by this time, some of his other friends have, are starting to talk how their seed is, is sprouting, and it's starting to grow, and, and a month goes by, and two months go by, there's no plant. And everyone is, oh, mine's growing about, about half a foot now, and, and everybody's talking about their plants. He has nothing coming out of his pot. Five months, six months go by, the entire year goes by, he has nothing. And he's incredibly discouraged. He thought, I must have messed up, I must have done something wrong. I'm not going to the palace. You know, the year dates come. I'm not going. His mom says, no, you're going to go. It's the right thing to go, go. So he shows up with a pot with nothing. And when they show up to the palace, everyone is walking in with big plants. Someone got like, almost looked like trees, and they're walking in. They're kind of snickering at little Ling. He doesn't have anything. And they stand in this big hall, and the, the emperor comes, and he welcomes everybody. And, uh, and then he announces that he's going to select the next emperor. And as he's talking, uh, he, he, he glances around, and he points at Ling. He says, you, come up here. And everybody kind of thinks, oh, geez, he's going to get in trouble. I mean, he doesn't have anything. And then the emperor announced, one year ago, exactly today, I gave each of you a seed. It was a boiled seed, a dead seed, not able to grow anything. But 99 of you, obviously, after a couple days or a couple weeks, saw that nothing was growing, and so you reached in, you pulled out the seed, and you put in your own seed. There was only one who had the courage and the character, the integrity and the honesty to do exactly as I said. And he will be rewarded for it and he will be the next emperor. You will also be rewarded if you choose to be a person of integrity. You will also be rewarded if you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, especially when no one's looking. You know what? It's easy to do the right thing when people are looking. But when no one's looking... That's when it's hard. That's when it's hard. What have we learned so far? Well, God uses ordinary people with extraordinary commitment. Well, what do we mean? We meant this. Let's put the summary slide up there. We talked about, uh, oh, last one, seven. Love to worship. Let me cover this one real quick. Uh, Psalm 30, verse two. My heart may sing to you, not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Psalm 9, one and two. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name. You know, one thing that we're going to discover about David is that he was an able administrator. He was a gifted military tactician. He was a a fantastic leader, an accomplished author. But one of the things that David also was is a skilled musician and worship leader. When you read the book of Psalms, what you discover, very, he loved to worship God. He, he cherished times when he can express how much God meant to him. He wasn't one of those people that read his bulletin during the worship time. Oh, no, no, no. He, he wasn't one of those persons that more or less sure showed up on time. Ah, as long as I get there when they start the sermon, I'll be fine. Oh, no, no, no. He wasn't one of those people that stood there and thought to himself, well, I worship God in my spirit, in my heart. I don't actually have to sing it. Oh, no, no, no. I don't care if I have to have or don't have an American Idol voice, but I am going to let people know that I love God and I am committed to praising him and glorifying him and letting as many people know that I'm a follower of his. 
That's who he was. One of the interesting things about worship is you can discover very quickly someone's commitment to God based upon what they do during worship. It's amazing. Because some of us will go, I, I don't want to sing. I, I really do. I, gotta, I'm not, I don't have a good voice. I, I, I can't sing. I don't want people around me to know that. You know what you've just done? You've just made it about you. It's never been about you. It's always been about God. Now, I'm not suggesting we sign up and come up here with joy and sing. But you know what? Do you have it in you to say, God, I love you? That's the worship time. That's all it is. And David loved to do that. He loved to do that. Ordinary people with an extraordinary commitment. Here's the summary slide. Let's put it up there. One of my favorite movies is a classic. Stars John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, the Blues Brothers. Every so often it's on late at night on TNT, right, when they don't have anything else to put on. It's the story of two ex-convicts wannabe musicians, right? And the story of the movie is they're trying to save an orphanage, right? And every time someone asks them, well, what are you doing? What is your work? They always say the same thing. You remember what they said? We are on a mission from God. We're on a mission from God. And they always would say it like they really believed it. They would say it like, you know, they were confident of it. That's, that's one of the jokes in the movie, that some kind of bumbling, inept two guys that don't really sing that great could think that they're actually on a mission from God. I'm going to end with this, so listen very, very carefully. Some of us have still not quite understood that every single one of us here today, and I mean every single one of us, is literally on a mission from God. We, we have been given the task by God Almighty himself to, to be on a mission for him. The mission of sharing the good news of his son Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. The, to share the mission of the gospel. To, to, we're on a mission to, to live for him. We're on a mission to make a difference in this generation, to make a difference in this community. We have been given the mission to make a difference in whatever sphere of influence we have, whether that's a small one or a large one. Every single one of us, I don't care how inept, how inordinary, how educated or not you are, you have been given a mission by an almighty God. And here's the good news. You don't need to go to Harvard or to Cal or have these incredible degrees to be incredible for God. You can be an ordinary person with an extraordinary commitment. You know, when you look on that screen, that says nothing about our IQ. It says nothing about where we went to school. It says nothing about our giftedness. It says nothing about any of these things that the world looks at. You know what that screen says? It's a choice. A choice you can make this morning. I am going to choose to do that. Ordinary people with extraordinary commitment, God can accomplish great things for his kingdom. My guess, and this is because of how the Holy Spirit works, is that he's been whispering to you for some while now about one of those things. It's not new to you. You've already heard it before. Find that one thing. And make that commitment today. Make it today. Let's stand. We'll close in a word of prayer. I'll let you get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that uh, we could learn about you and we could worship you. We thank you for the life of David. And uh, we thank you for this initial story who... um, 
It reminds us that, that we, don't, we don't have to be everything the world says we have to be. We, we don't have to impress the world. We, we don't even necessarily have to impress you, but we do have to be committed to you. We have to make the choice to follow you, to obey you, and to do what you ask us to do. And, and thank you for that example in David. Th- I, I thank you for what you're going to teach us in the rest of this series. And uh, we love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.